Well, a pastor had a wedding to do, and during the wedding rehearsal, the groom approached the pastor with a very unusual offer. He said, look, I'll give you $100 if you change the wedding vows. When you get to me and the part where I'm supposed to promise to love, honor, and obey and forsake all others and be faithful to her forever, I'd appreciate if you'd leave that part out. What a creep, huh? So he passed the minister a $100 bill and walked away smug and satisfied. It is now the day of the wedding and the bride and the groom have moved to that part of the ceremony where the vows are exchanged. And when it comes time for the groom's vows, the pastor looks the young man in the eye and says this. Will you promise to bow before your wife every day, obey her every command, and serve her breakfast in bed every morning of your life, and swear eternally before God and your lovely wife that you will not ever even look at another woman as long as you both shall live? The groom gulped and looked around and said in a pathetic voice, Yes. The groom leaned forward toward the pastor and he hissed at him, I thought we had a deal. And the pastor put the $100 bill back into his hands and whispered back, She made me a much better offer. (laughs) (laughs) Promises, 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 vows, covenants. We all make them. We make promises to one another, but do we keep them? Our God is a promise-keeping God. Amen? In Joel chapter 1, we learned about a devastation to the agricultural economy of the nation of Israel. They were devastated by a massive locust invasion. The prophet Joel made sure that the people of Israel understood that this locust invasion was not because of natural issues or nature issues. It was because of a spiritual discipline that God was inflicting upon the nation because he needed to get the attention of the people of Israel. So he allowed them to be disciplined so that way they could be course corrected. In chapter 2, he described a massive army that would invade the nation of Israel if they did not repent. If they, did, if they didn't stop worshiping false gods. If they were not continually mediocre in their relationship with the one true God, this, this army would invade. And sure enough, about 100 years after Joel wrote these words, Assyria gobbled up the northern part of Israel and even threatened Judah as well. But then finally, in chapter 3, the nations that God used to discipline Israel, will they themselves be judged by defeat? God will bless His people as they recover from their own bad choices. God even blesses us. He blesses us, even though we don't deserve it. Now Joel reminds us of who God is. That's the approach he takes. He doesn't focus so much on events, but he reminds us, Who is this God? As we sang a few minutes ago, there is no one like you. He is wholly unique. Even the other gods, gods, or at least the followers of other gods, would say, your God has unique characteristics. We don't even claim those about our gods. But your God is wholly unique, especially as he moves toward you in grace. He gives you blessings. He gives you gifts that you do not deserve. 
but yet he has made those promises to you and he is a promise keeping God. So Joel reminds us of who God is. Look what verses 17 through 19 say in Joel chapter 3. They say this, Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of the acacias. And so Joel records a future time of glory for God and his people. And this period of time that Joel is describing here is the period of the millennium. Now, we did talk about the millennial period in some detail as we studied Revelation chapter 20. This thousand year period where the promises that were made to Israel way, way back to Abraham and Moses will be fulfilled in this period of time because they haven't been fulfilled yet and God is a promise-keeping God. And so God reveals his plan to us in various places in Scripture. You might say, oh, no, more eschatology. But if you look at the Old Testament, at least a quarter, if not a third of the Old Testament is about future things. Now, some of those things were... Those prophecies were recorded and also fulfilled within the pages of Scripture. But many of the things have not been fulfilled yet, and this will be the time of their fulfillment. Joel touches on it. So many of the other Old Testament prophets, as well as many of the New Testament writers as well. And so God will most certainly fulfill his promises. This millennial period will be glorious. And Joel gives us some information on that. So first he talks about that his presence will be evident. I will dwell in Zion. I will dwell in Judah. In fact, he closes out the book and he says, the Lord dwells in Zion, which is Jerusalem. He doesn't just make an appearance. He dwells there. He dwells there with evidence. You don't need faith anymore to see the presence of God. His presence will be very evident. At one point in time, the Shekinah glory of the Lord left Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. In Ezekiel chapter 11, we learn about that. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. The glory of the Lord, his Shekinah glory. Where does the word Shekinah mean? What does it mean? It means that God dwells among us. It's not just his glory in general that could be anywhere. It's his glory that we can see evidence of. And most certainly the Israelites saw that evidence. They experienced it as it led them as a pillar of fire through the desert for 40 years. And then when the temple was built... The glory of the Lord filled the temple. His Shekinah glory was there. So the Israelites could say, we don't even need faith to see God's glory. We can see it as it illumines the temple. It brightens the whole place up. So the glory of the Lord was with Israel. But then Israel had sinned just one too many times. They worshipped the Baals and the Molechs and the other false gods. They saw kind of a, had a kind of a mediocre attitude toward their faith in God. They did all the rituals and so on, but their heart just wasn't in it anymore. And so the glory of the Lord left the temple. 
But God is gracious. And Ezekiel in chapter 43 reports that one day the glory of the Lord will return. And that's what Joel is talking about here in Joel chapter 3. The glory of the Lord will return once again to dwell among men and women and boys and girls. And the Hebrew people will see it. The Egyptians even saw it too. And it put some fear into them. But the Israelites are the ones who experience. And they said, he is our God. He is spirit. But we can see evidence of him through this light. And so his protection will be perfect. The land will be fertile. And there will even be topographical features that will be new. He reports this in the last part of verse 18. He says, a fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of the acacias. What's that all about? Well, Zechariah talks about it. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it to the east, to the Dead Sea, and half of it to the west, to the Mediterranean Sea, in summer and in winter. And sure enough, this valley of the acacias, also known as Abel Shittim, this water will flow from Jerusalem, toward the east as well as to the west. That's one of the geological features of the millennial kingdom. Some topographical changes will take place. And this water that flows from the temple, why is God doing that? God wants to remind Israel, I am the one who blesses you. I am the one who gives you living water. It doesn't come from the false gods of the Canaanites or the Babylonians or the Assyrians, or the Egyptians. They can't do that. But I will bless you directly as this wonderful fresh water runs out of the temple toward the east as well as toward the west. That is a prophecy that will most certainly be fulfilled in the thousand-year reign of Christ. But enemies will also be vanquished. In verse 19, it's reported that Egypt will be desolate, Edom a desert waste. They are just two examples of the ancient system known as Babylon. This system that since the day of literal Babylon and that empire, there have been other nations, there have been other forces that just have this continual nonstop tendency to want to gather as much centralized power as possible. We see it today with the movement toward globalism. But it's nothing new. It's always been around. There are always dictators who want to take over the world, and we still have that. But one day, according to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, John spends a lot of time talking about the final destruction of the system, not just the nation, but the system of Babylon. It will be destroyed. Edom and Egypt are just examples. They're just symptoms of this wicked system that centralizes power and seeks to dominate humanity. So despite Israel's mixed performance, and it's mixed performance at best, I'm being real generous, despite Israel's mixed performance at following the one true God, at obeying him, God will still fulfill his promises because he made those promises to Israel so they will be fulfilled. Now, many will be saved during the tribulation period, this period of seven years that exists before the thousand-year reign of Christ. In fact, John reports to us that it starts off with 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from all 12 tribes. 
And that'll be the beginning of the revival of the people of Israel. Because even though God will protect the Hebrew people from total destruction and will actually allow them to thrive, we've got to remember that the current government of Israel is not the government that God desires. It is a secular democracy. It's compared to all the other systems of government in the current Middle East, it's a good one because at least the leaders are accountable to their people through elections. But a secular democracy is not what God wants. God wants a theocratic monarchy. He wants Israel to be ruled by their true king, who is Yahweh. And just that basic understanding is one of the reasons why King David was such a phenomenal king. Because at the end of the day, he knew that he was really not the one in charge. Saul thought he was the one who was in charge. In fact, he never really asked God any questions about the direction of that nation. But David had a humble heart. David sinned a lot, but David also repented a lot. But the thing that David knew best is that he knew that he, at best, was just an assistant king. So government matters to God, how things are done. And so in the millennial kingdom, we will have finally, finally, to hold on people, hold on, we'll have a perfect government. Why? Well, because we'll have a perfect king. We'll have Yahweh. We'll have Jesus sitting on the throne of David. So many will be saved during the tribulation period, that period right before the millennium. And that protection, this protection doesn't imply that all Jews are automatically saved. So we still need to preach the gospel to the Jews. But we know from this report about what it will look like in the tribulation period that a lot of Jews are going to come to know Christ as their Savior. In the beginning of the church, it was 100% Jewish. The redeemed of God will include many more Jews, I think, as a percentage of saved people during the tribulation period. God's promises to the Hebrew nation will most certainly be fulfilled. God will dwell with his people and keep his promises. You see, his dwelling is not just a promise of his presence, but it is the experience of his active presence. So they will know that God is with them, that they have their God. No longer is faith necessary because we will see with our own eyes the Shekinah glory of God as it emanates from the temple and the millennial kingdom. So what are some of the other characteristics? We'll just do a brief survey of some of the characteristics of the millennial period. We went through this about six months ago, but just so you understand some of the other context and the other characteristics of this thousand-year reign of Christ, here are a few characteristics. It begins the eternal reign of Christ as king. It's just not a thousand years. It goes into eternity. But the thousand-year reign of Christ just begins his eternal reign. It's eternal, but merged with the new heavens and the new earth. Christ will continue to reign. It is earthly, but it is also worldwide. Believers will rule and judge with Christ. So we will be there, and we'll have jobs to do. So sorry, no retirement. you got a lot of jobs to do. The experience, the attitude of that time will be peace and joy and justice, prosperity, health, and increase in knowledge. It will not be heaven, though. But it will be a lot better than this existence. Israel will be the nucleus of the kingdom. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and the temple will be central to that kingdom. Israel will receive the promised land that was told to them in Genesis chapter 15. And this is roughly what that piece of real estate looks like. 
The curse will be partially lifted, and as a result, there will be physical and spiritual transformation, animal natures, climate, and some topographical changes, as we already talked about. Resurrected believers, possibly non-resurrected believing tribulation survivors, will inhabit the kingdom of God, the millennial kingdom. Angels will be there. But non-believers will be born from believers. And because we know that the thousand, end of the thousand-year reign of Christ will be one last gasp of Satan as he tries to rebel against God. And we know that that will be ultimately crushed. So these are, these are the promises that God has made all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament about the future. About the future, especially as it pertains to Israel. So he's a promise-keeping God, so these things will be fulfilled. You might say, wow, that's just too spectacular. I don't know if I can really believe that. Well, the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. And we see example after example after example after example of prophecies that were made within Scripture and also fulfilled within Scripture. So the reasonable, objective person will say, well, since all these hundreds of other, thousands of other prophecies have been made and fulfilled, we can trust in these future prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. That's the objective, reasonable person. See, that's what the evidence shows us. So therefore, we can trust this covenant-making, promise-keeping God. God will dwell with his people and keep his promises. But what other promises has God made? Since we're not Jewish, does it you know, pertain to us directly and so on, even though we'll be in the millennial period? What about promises now, John? Stop talking about eschatology and future things. What about in here and now? Good question, good comment. I'll provide some information for you in that regard. What promises has God made to encourage us now? Well, he's made lots of promises to us. He's promised us eternal life if we trust in Jesus as our Savior. He's promised us wisdom if we ask for it. That's what it says in the book of James. Anybody who asks for wisdom will be given wisdom. Just How does that happen? Well, just by the fact that you're asking God for wisdom, that's wisdom in and of itself. The fear of God is really the starting point of wisdom, Solomon has said in the book of Proverbs. He's promised us forgiveness, and we'll, get, we'll drill down into that a little bit in a few minutes. And then he's given us love. And, uh, you know, do you, how much evidence do you need that God loves you? He sent his only son to die for you. That's pretty good. That's excellent. That's awesome. He's given us his presence. He's given us answers on so many hundreds of practical topics. He's promises to meet our physical needs in Matthew chapter 6. He has given us purpose in life. He has given us value and the basis for a biblical self-image. Not self-esteem, but self-image. How do I view myself? He's answered all of those questions. He answers all the big picture questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? What's the purpose of life? He pulls us away from existentialism. Which teaches, which teaches that you have to create your own meaning in life. No, he has given us meaning. And we could grab a hold of it. Something much bigger than us. More eternal than us. And so God has made many promises to us. It's important for us to know the promises of God, but it's also equally important for us to know what he has not promised us. And some of this flies in the face of major ministries that are just... Blocks or miles from here, because Dallas-Fort Worth is the hub of the health and wealth prosperity movement. America has exported a lot of things, but one of the things we export is the health and wealth prosperity movement. 
And I'm sorry, Pastor Moses, that's a bad export of America, you know. So the health and wealth prosperity movement teaches crazy things like you're guaranteed worldly success or somehow you can manipulate God into giving you worldly success. Now, he does give that to some believers, but then he's never promised it to all believers. He's never even promised it to a few believers. Sometimes he just gives it. He's never promised us perfect health in this life. I mean, look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a man who had a thorn in his flesh, and he asked God once, twice, and three times to remove that thorn. But God said no, and Paul reflected on that, and he says, no, he's given me this thorn in the flesh. He's given me this illness, whatever it is. Some people say it's stomach ailment. Some people say it's heart disease or bad eyesight, whatever it might be. He's given it to me so I remain humble. He's, he, he, Paul reports in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that um, I'm not going to preach about my strengths. I'm going to boast in my weaknesses so that the power of God remains on me. So I plug in to this infinite power source. So he doesn't give us everything that we want, but he does give us everything that we need. He has not promised us perfect health. He has not promised us, us bundles of money. He has not promised us the absence of disappointments in this life. He uses those things in his sovereignty to wear off our rough edges and to sanctify us. So he uses all those difficult things to change and transform us from the inside out. So God has promised us many good things, but he has also not promised us certain things. But then finally, in verses 20 and 21, he reminds us of who he is as he closes this book out. Look what verse 20 says. It says, Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. The Lord dwells in Zion. So what is he saying here? Yahweh's promises are fulfilled. He's a covenant-making and a promise-keeping God. He's reminding us who we are, who he is. He doesn't just tell us about the events that are going to take place. He reminds us of his identity. That he is so far different from all the other gods around him, which are all false, which either don't exist or they're demonic forces. Yahweh's promises are fulfilled. The physical world will be vastly improved in the millennial kingdom. The people will inhabit the land. But, just as important, the spiritual health of the people of Israel, the spiritual health of the Gentile nations, of those who follow the one true God and have put their faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin, the spiritual health of all of those people will be transformed by what? By God's forgiveness of us. Oh my goodness, He's forgiven us. We've just scratched the surface of realizing the value of this phenomenal forgiveness. For us, Christ chose to absorb the injustice that we caused. He took on the result. The offenses of our transgressions, our sin was put into His account and His righteousness was put into our account. So when we trust in Jesus as our Savior, we go from a massive deficit to neutral. All the bad stuff is no longer held against us. Because Jesus expedited. He paid for it. He 
processed it through his death. He's a God who's just. He doesn't just wink at sin. I saw a video this past week of a Bible apologist talking to a Muslim woman. And he asked the Muslim woman, what does your God, Allah, what does he do with your sin? Oh, he pardons us. He forgives us. And then the Bible apologist pressed the woman and said, well, how can he pardon and forgive it if he hasn't paid for it himself or hasn't had a third party pay for it? You see, the God of the Muslims is not just. He is not a God of justice. He hasn't thought through it. He has no means by which he can authentically forgive transgressions that mankind has done against him and others. But our God has not only thought of it, our God actually paid for it by sending his son Jesus to die for us, to pay for our sins. Because he is a God who is not only gracious, but he is also a God who is just. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. That's what this God does. He heals us to that extent. So we have the sinlessness of Christ, which is an imperative. It is an essential. The writer of Hebrews says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is the, the only one who could have paid for our sins because of two facts. One, because he himself is the perfect Lamb of God. And secondly, because he, being the Son of the living God, is also deity himself. And so therefore, he could pay for an infinite amount of sin because he himself is infinite. So he is the qualified sacrifice to pay for our sin. And the sinfulness of humanity is something that is very easily uh, something you can easily back up. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then there is this glorious concept and implementation known as substitutionary atonement. Ah. And if you look, if you use a gospel track to share the good news with people, make sure that whatever gospel track you use, it has substitution in it. Some of them leave it out. I don't understand that. But I will never use one that has nothing about substitution, that God demonstrated his love to us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Peter wrote this. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And then there is the process of this exchange that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5. He says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Ah, oh, wow. That is great news. And so there is this loss of our bad stuff, the sin. We're forgiven. So the sin is no longer held against us. So that brings us up to neutral. But then that's not something God's satisfied with. He wants to give us what we really need in addition to forgiveness. He gets us up to 
zero from a massive deficit. And then he pours it on thick. He gives us the righteousness of Christ is put into our account. He who was without sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. His innocence, his purity, and his holiness is projected onto us. It's put in our ledger books as an asset. And just like these video projectors are projecting images onto the two screens, so Christ's righteousness is put into our accounts. And so, you've heard me say this before, we have this exchange. We have the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. That he was rich, became poor. And we who are poor in our, in our sinfulness have become rich. So we're forgiven. That's what this God does for us. And all of it, all of it, we don't deserve it. It's all by grace. That in and of itself is, it, it is totally unique in the religious realm. Biblical Christianity, my friends, is the only one that claims that. Don't forget that. It stands unique in philosophy and religion and faith. That God himself came to die for us. Christ not only stood up for us, but he died for us. He paid the penalty of our sins so that way we could be forgiven but put great riches into our accounts by giving us his perfect standing before the Father. All of his condescending, as if his condescending incarnation was not enough, he also died the most humiliating death for us. And so he announces here that I will forgive. But we don't deserve it. You've got to make it more difficult for us. Nope, this is the only way it can be done. But people are going to get away with murder. Huh, you already have. You know, We want justice for other people, but we want mercy for ourselves. That's the way we think. But God thinks all these people need grace because zero of them can pay for it themselves. And if they tried, they'd be paying for it for eternity. And they'll be eternally separated. This is the only way it can be done. And God did it. So God will forgive his people and be just at the same time. But do not miss the thrust, the tone, the direction of this passage. It's really not about us. It's really not about the events. It is about the one who does the events. That's the whole thrust of the book of Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sure, it contains lots of events, but even this in the book of Joel tells us about the events, the warnings, the blessings, the grace. But the most important message is the message of who God is. That's what he's showing to us. That's what he's revealing to us. In Exodus chapter 5, Moses is in a quagmire. He's frustrated. He complains to God. It's a good example of complaint prayer, by the way. Toward the end of Exodus chapter 5, he tells God, God, this is not working. You have not saved your people yet. So Moses, like a good leader, 
dares go before dares to go before God and reports God. This is not working. Every time I go to Pharaoh, he says no. Say, let my people go. And he says, no. So it's not working, God. What what does God do? How does he respond? He tells Moses about the future events that will take place. But he reminds him of past events. And he also reminds Moses of who he is. Joel's doing the same thing here in Joel chapter 3. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh because of my mighty hand. He will let them go because of my mighty hand. He will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I am in the Hebrew. It's Anihu. That is the name that God calls himself in Hebrew. In Greek, it's ego me. I am. That's the name that he tells of himself to Moses at the burning bush experience, I am. I am independent. No one can tell me what to do. No one can influence me unless I allow them to influence me. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, Anihu Adonai Yahweh. He doesn't use the word, the generic word for God, Elohim, which could refer to any God, kind of like our English word God. But he reminds Moses of his identity, of his who-ness, of his name. This is who I am. And so since I am Yahweh, since I am Adonai, I am the covenant-making and promise-keeping God, you can count on me. Let let me continue to remind you of some history. I will bring you out under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will redeem you from an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, Adonai, Yahweh, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give you to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Do not doubt me. He is reliable because he is Yahweh. He is perfectly unlike any other God. None of the gods even claim this, let alone are it. One of my favorite characteristics or attributes of God is that he is independent. He is perfectly independent and not sustained by creation. So nothing can thwart his will. He can deliver on his promises. He is the absolute being worked. He is the absolute. He is working with unbounded freedom in the performance of his promises. So this is who he is. Don't forget who he is. So that way you can trust what he does and what he says. So you might be going through a real tough time right now. I know some of you struggling with finances. You're struggling with relationships. That's a big one. Struggling with health issues. 
God has promised answers to some of those things, not all of them. But he has promised you that he would never leave or forsake you. He gives us tough times. He gives us trials to deal with. So that way our rough edges are worn off to sanctify us. And so because of who he is, that, that, that he, he blesses us. He blesses our socks off. And, and we don't deserve any of it. It's all icing on the cake. None of it is earned. How could we not be attracted to a God like that? So when the forces around us put stress on us and we get tempted to become anxious or we get tempted just to hang it all up, this is the God, this is the only God that you can lean into. And there's a great blessing in that too because then when we lean into him and draw closer to him, even with tears, tears of stress, tears of regret, whatever that might be, we lean into him and then we get the greatest blessing of all. We get to know him like we've never known him before. To know who he is. Know what he has done. And also know what he plans to do. And know that he is a God who is trustworthy. Lean into him and trust him. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. Thank you for all that you do. We're living in a difficult world, difficult times. We see warfare. We see struggle. We see murder. We see rape. We see people getting cancer. We see divorces. God, it's not good down here. There are some there are some positive things, but we're just not built for this. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And until you come, help us to manage the best that we can by leaning into you. Thank you that you are God who is trustworthy, a God who is just, a God who is all-powerful, a God who is ever-present, a God who is all-knowing. You're merciful and gracious. Thank you for being those things. And thank you for telling us what you plan on doing and that you're trustworthy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.